Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, C4. <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that great introduction. It's such a privilege to be speaking to you this morning. Uh, next week, I'll have been at C4 for four years, and it's just uh, such a privilege to be doing life with you guys. And I can't wait uh, to hang out with you in God's Word this morning. I want to say a quick shout out to those uh, watching online on our podcast later on. And an extra special shout-out to our North Durham crowd. I went to uh, Port Perry High School where it's being held. Grew up in Port Perry and uh, certainly never thought I'd be preaching uh, in my old high school gym from a big screen. So uh, God works in mysterious ways. Hello to you out there. Uh, uh, Four years ago, I came to C4, but seven years ago, uh, I came to C4 for the first time. I'm just going to share with you my story very briefly. Some of you know it. I grew up in the church, a pastor's kid, and people would always used to ask me, are you going to grow up to preach like your daddy? And I I would always say, no, no way. And of course, here I am. But uh, when I was in high school, near the later stages of high school, I made a conscious decision that I was going to walk away from the church altogether, that I was just going to run away from the whole thing. And it had been some time since I had been to church, and a friend of mine who attended here uh, invited me out to this church called C4. And I was like, well, well, sounds, sounds dynamite. Let's, let's go and let's try it out. So I came over here and I sat right over there, right where, where James and Jen are sitting. And during the second song of the first service, I, I mean, I can't describe, the Lord just overwhelmed me with something and my life has never been the same. And uh, part of the reason why C4 is special to me is because of what God has done in my life. And I believe he's still doing that here this morning. Do you agree with me? Amen. Amen. Question for you. When is the last time you had a great meal? Like a great meal. I want you to think about it for a second. The last time you had a really great meal. I was just talking to Pastor Dave, and he was telling me about this salad that he had recently. It had broccoli in it. It had carrots and some celery on the side. And he was just saying, this was the best meal I've ever had. Kidding, of course. He's a carnivore. I'm a carnivore as well. My wife and I just got back from two weeks in Florida. We went to this place called Charlie's. I don't know if you've ever been there. I think it's kind of a small restaurant. And uh, I ordered the Texas burger. And I know you weren't there. You had to be there. It was just, it was the best burger I've ever had. I don't know what they did with the bun. I don't know what they did with the cheese and the bacon and, and, and the ground beef. But it was just the best burger I've ever had. We also went to Chick-fil-A. Everybody, anybody ever been to Chick-fil-A? Actually, let me rephrase myself. We went to Chick-fil-A six times in two weeks. And then I made a huge mistake this week when I was home. I was hungry, so I went to McDonald's. And the whole thing was shot after that. When I was 16 years old, I'm passionate about food. When I was 16 years old, my grandma and grandpa baked me 16 apple pies from scratch, frozen, put them in the freezer, and gave me 16 apple pies for my birthday. It was the best birthday I've ever had. I can remember... I can remember my friend Adam Hale, who's my brother-in-law now, he came over to play video games one time when when I was 16, and we just popped two of them in the oven, and we just both had a pie while we played video games, and it it was phenomenal. But I think my favorite meal, if I could pick anything to have at any time, would be sushi. Is there any sushi fans in the house? You either love it or you hate it, but I absolutely love it. I think sushi's gonna be on the menu in heaven. I think if I could pick anything, it would be sushi. Nothing like a great meal. This morning we're going to be looking at a parable that talks about a great meal. And in fact, it actually takes place over a great meal. 
This summer, as you know, many of you would know, we're walking through some of the parables of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. So if you have your Bible or if you have an app on your phone, I would invite you to turn there now. When we get to the 14th chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus is at about the midpoint of his ministry. He's approaching the end. In chapter 9 of Luke, a few chapters previous to the one we're in today, a subtle storyline emerges in Jesus' ministry as he begins quietly his journey to Jerusalem. As we know, that is where he would eventually die. Along his long journey to Jerusalem, he's stopping all along the way. He's teaching and he's healing and he's meeting with all kinds of people as he goes. And on this particular day, Jesus is having dinner in the house of a Pharisee. And this is the scene of our parable for today. Pharisees were a group of so-called religious elite who prided themselves on outward expressions of holiness and on good works. They were bitter enemies of Jesus who in their eyes was disturbing the peace in Israel, disturbing the religious peace, and he was stealing attention away from them. By the time we get to Luke 14, their animosity towards Jesus has been growing for a while. And as they eat together in this Pharisee's house, Tensions are very high. Before the parable that we're going to be in, a few important things happen in this chapter, in chapter 14. In verse 2, it says, There in front of him, Jesus, was a man suffering from abnormal swelling. Jesus asked the Pharisee and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking a hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Now this rubbed the Pharisees totally the wrong way because they had a rule that said you can't heal on the Sabbath. But they had lost the heart of the law altogether, which is what Jesus is going to be driving at this morning. Then after that happened, still in Luke 14, Jesus noticed something. All the other guests at this banquet, at this meal that he was at, they all chose the best seats at the table that they could find. And then he challenges this too. He says in verse 8, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, 11, for, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. By this point, the Pharisees are kind of catching on. Jesus is talking to them about them. In this shame and honor society that they are living in, this is an indictment on their entire way of life. And, and the temperature in the room is rising. Then finally, he turns to the host of the banquet, the most important person in the room, and says in Luke 14, 12, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your, your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you back, and, and, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Again, this is an implicit indictment of the host. And as we will see, what he said not to do, Jesus, is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. He is beginning to expose them for who they really are. And these men, full of pride and full of concern over self-image, are getting real angry. And it's under this backdrop that we read our parable for this morning, beginning in verse 15. With this temperature in the room, Jesus takes this opportunity to launch into a parable because of what one Pharisee says next. Verse 15. When one of those at the table heard him say all these things, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. 
Now you read that verse and you're like, yeah, I can get on board with that. It seems like there's some common ground here. But what is actually happening is this man is trying to diffuse the tension that's in the room. It's getting kind of awkward, getting kind of angry there. You can feel the palpable tension. What he's basically saying is, you know, Jesus, despite all our differences, won't it be nice for all of us to sit around a table in the kingdom of God and just enjoy a simple meal together? Won't it be great? We'll all be there. It's going to be awesome. He's assuming, of course, that he's going to be there. He's assuming that him and all his other friends are going to be there at the feast in the kingdom of God. See, the Bible describes a great feast at the end of the age. There will be a feast, sorry, uh, sorry, excuse me. The Bible describes a great feast at the end of the age when heaven and earth will collide and become one, where all who belong to Jesus will dine with him in paradise. It's one of my favorite things in all the Bible. It gets me so excited. Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. They think, of course we'll be invited. We are the Pharisees. We are the religious elite. We've got the first five books of the Bible memorized. Of course we're there. But Jesus challenges this assumption. See, it's not our good works or our outward appearance that get us into heaven. We cannot buy a seat at this table. And Jesus takes this opportunity And he launches right into a parable. This is what he says, starting in verse 16. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. It's very applicable for them because this is exactly what they're doing right now. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Banquets in those days were, were quite a bit different than they are today in many ways. I have certainly never been to anything remotely close to what Jesus is describing in this parable. All he says is that it would be a great banquet and there would be many people there. But that is more than enough information to tell us what this would be like. We know that great banquets were all out, lavish dinner parties. Maybe they could last up to days on end. The host would go to great lengths to ensure the honor and entertainment of his guests. But more than just mealtimes or celebrations, these, these banquets were loaded with messages about who is up and who is down in social status. Who is popular, who is powerful, who is important, who has the best jobs. So just simply being invited was a huge deal. It's very honorable to just be invited to a banquet like this. Because not everyone was invited. You had to be asked to come. And it was always based on merit. It was what you brought to the table, who you were, that earned you a seat at this banquet. See, the only people that were asked to come were the socially elite, the powerful, the important, and the wealthy. Back in March, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but President Obama held a state dinner for Justin Trudeau a few months after he became prime minister. I don't know if you saw pictures of this thing, but it was just unbelievable. The Global Mail said it was a dinner party with the most powerful people in the world at one of the grandest residences in the world where Canadians held the stage, uh, the attention of a nation, if only for a night. The guest list was pretty insane. Michael J. Fox was there, Ryan Reynolds, Blake Lively, Gary Bettman, I don't know why Gary Bettman was there. Lord Michaels, Mike Myers was there. And listen to the menu for the evening. The first course was Alaskan halibut casseroles with delicate angel hair, asparagus, chanterellas, baby onions with lardon, herbed butter, followed by a roasted apricot gelette with Appalachian cheese, heirloom lettuces, and pine nut crisps. 
That was course one. I'm not even going to keep going. Everyone is in tuxedos. There's limos and red carpets everywhere. And this is the perfect modern equivalent of what Jesus is describing. You and I did not get invited to that banquet. We did not get invited to that state dinner because I'm not a prime minister or a celebrity, and I don't think either are you. Now, you might have noticed in this story there were two invitations. There was one, and then there was a second one. It's interesting because in that time, nobody had watches, and banquets took a long time to prepare. So two invitations were necessary. One for the initial announcement, hey, wedding invitation, you know, this is happening at this date and that date. And then a second announcement that says, okay, everything's now ready, so come on in. They did this, uh, maybe there was days, weeks, months in between, so people had time to get ready and time to adjust their plans so that they could be there. So, verse 17, at the time of the banquet, the host sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come now, for everything is ready. It's going to be amazing. Everyone's going to be there. It's going to be unforgettable. But hold on. There's a problem. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I need to go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. You got to understand, this is so unusual. No one ever asks to be excused from something like this. The honor is unthinkable. For them to say no We have to ask why. See, it's incredibly rude to decline the invitation, especially at this point, because the food has already been prepared. You have a seat at the table with your name on it. Why would you say no now? It can only really mean one thing. Let's be honest. The guests really just don't want to come. It's it's not about the oxen or the field or the the new spouse. It's apparent to us that they just really just don't want to come. But let's look at them very quickly and go through each one just to see if this is true. The first excuse, the man says, I have just bought a field. I must go see it. Please excuse me. We can assume safely that this first man was wealthy. We know that because he, had, uh, he was a landowner. So it makes sense that he would be invited to this thing. But we also know that nobody would ever buy a field without going to look at it first. When I worked at Port Perry Marina in high school, I learned one thing very quickly. Any boat owners out there will know this. The cardinal rule with being a boat owner is that you don't buy a boat until you put it in the water first and you take it for a spin. If you buy a boat on a trailer, there's probably going to be something wrong with it, and there's probably a reason the seller doesn't want it to be in the water when he sells it to you. You've got to take it for a drive first. And we can safely say that no man would buy this much property without having a look at it first. This is, this, this is a lie. It's an excuse. This man just simply doesn't want to come. Plus, the field would be there tomorrow. The second man says, another said, uh, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out, so please excuse me. The same is basically true for this. Five yokes of oxen actually means ten oxen yoked together. And scholars say that this, this is enough oxen to cover a massive field. We can safely assume that this man, too, was wealthy. But the same is true for this. Why would you buy them without checking them first? Of course, he checked them first. Again, this is a lie. This is an excuse. And this man doesn't want to come. Still another, the third excuse says, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, this is by far the most creative excuse because there's actually scripture in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 24 that says when a man gets married, he doesn't have to do anything for a year. So he's pulling this scripture out and twisting it around for his own advantage. Because what the scripture really means is that it excuses a man from military service for a year so he can be with his wife. But he's using it so he doesn't have to go to a fancy dinner. It's creative. I've got to give him credit for that. 
But this one is just as transparent as the others. It's not holding any water. It's an excuse. Clearly, these three people just don't want to go to the banquet. And you know how it is. We all make up excuses, don't we? We all make up excuses. We know exactly what the deal is so we can sniff out other people's excuses when they're making them. These people just seem to have other priorities. And I think this is really key. The first guest would rather inspect his new field. The second guest would rather try out his new toys. The third guest would rather be with his wife than be with the host. I don't think they understand just how great this banquet is going to be. Maybe they haven't taken time to look into the plants. Maybe they haven't taken the time to get to know the host just to see what kind of stuff he normally puts together. Regardless of the other reasons, what we know about hospitality and social structure in that time is the only real reason a person would decline an invitation to a banquet is because of the host. What they are doing is they are declining the host. They are rejecting the host because his perceived social status is not up to their level. At the core, this is a rejection of the host, the master of the banquet. Verse 21, it says this, So the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly. Go out into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The master is angry. And of course he would be. Think of all the trouble that he's gone to. And now he's just been humiliated. In this shame and honor society, they are saying, No, you are not good enough. It's not important enough. We're not coming. <clears throat> he's gone to all this trouble. He's prepared this great banquet, and they stand him up at the last minute. And he knows the only real reason that they have rejected the invitation is because they have rejected him. But the host, the, the master, is determined to host a great feast. He's going to have this banquet one way or another. The master is going to accomplish his will. The guests who have rejected his invitation are not going to stop his plans. So he sends his servants out into the streets and alleys of the town to bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. See, the streets and alleys of the town would be like the downtown core where the homeless live, those, those who are down and out, those who need help from social structures and other people. He sends his servants out there to go get them. And remember, in this society that they're living in, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, whether we like it or not, as postmodern thinkers, these were considered the social outcasts and outsiders in the society. They're considered unclean. They are assumed that they are the way they are because they have sinned or their parents sinned in some way, which we know is absolutely ridiculous. But this is the world that these people are living in. Nobody ever invites them to a banquet like this. The host is risking a great deal. This is coming at a great cost to the host to invite these kinds of people because nobody wants them. But the master wants them. Verse 22, Sir, the servant said, What you order has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. There is still room at the master's house, so he sends his servants out again. He sends them out even further to the roads and the country lanes. See, the roads and country lanes, or highways, these would be the rural places. We've left the downtown core now, and now we're going out into the country. We're going out to places where there would be far less social care available for the poor. The people who live in these places are even worse off than the first group. Really, really, nobody wants them. Nobody thinks of them. Out of sight, out of mind, they're in a tough spot. 
But the master says, there is still room in, in my house. There are still seats open at my table. So go out, find them, and compel them to come in. This word compel is very interesting because what it really means is to bring in, to actually make them come in. See, these people are so debilitated and disabled, down on their luck, that they actually need someone else to bring them in. They cannot bring themselves to come to the banquet. And here we really begin to see the master's heart for the down and out. These people will not just be his second choice. These are not leftovers. They will be his most honored guests. The master is going to take those who don't belong and he is going to make them belong. He is going to find those who could never find him and welcome them into his home. He is going to take those who are dirty and ragged and run down and clean them up so that they can eat at his table. The master's new plans are set. He wants two things. He wants his house to be full and he wants for his table to be filled with the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The misfits in the eyes of the world. Those who know that they would never deserve a seat at his table. The people that nobody wants. The master wants them. Jesus, as he approaches the end of this parable, he turns, once talking to the whole room, now he turns and he looks at the Pharisee who asked, or who said the opening question. He looks him straight in the eye, and he says in verse 24, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This statement, when put in context, is absolutely astonishing. This is why you can't read your New Testament without reading your Old Testament. Let's begin to piece this parable together for a moment. As you may have guessed, the master in the story represents God. The banquet in the story represents heaven. But even more specifically than that, as I alluded to earlier, it's referring to a real banquet, a real feast that is going to take place at the end of the age that Scripture calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. When heaven and earth collide, when Jesus comes back for his own, when we are raised to life again in our resurrected bodies, we are going to eat and dine with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and each other. There's going to be a great feast, and we're going to be invited. There's going to be sushi there, and there's going to be salad for Dave. It's going to be fantastic. See, the first group of people who are invited to the banquet, the news is not so good for them. And it's, it's, it's astonishing when you think of who he's referring to, because he is referring to Israel. And the Pharisees. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel was God's people. He, he, he brought them in. He led them. He delivered them from Egypt. And he said, I will give you everything that you need and more if you will just worship me, if you will just walk with me, if you will just not betray me and go to other gods or, or get caught up in sin. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And to this Israel, and to these Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, in, in, in some ways, he says this, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. He's saying, Israel, even you, Pharisees, you have squandered your opportunity to come to this banquet. You have lost your seat at the table. Now, it's not too late. You can still come. The invitation is open for everybody. But if you don't come the right way, you might just give it up altogether. With the current mindset that you have, you have assumed wrongly that you will be there. You can just imagine, the Pharisees by this point are just seething mad. They're insulted, they're embarrassed, they're humiliated, they're furious. Jesus has just given his final verdict on the so-called righteousness of the Pharisees. 
And it's no wonder they wanted to kill him. In fact, soon after this, they would begin planning his death. They wanted to take him out altogether. See, what Jesus is saying in this parable here ultimately is that God, the master of the greatest banquet ever to be told, ever to take place, this God has been rejected by his own people. The very people he delivered out of Egypt and saved countless other times, made a covenant with and blessed just beyond their wildest dreams, these people have rejected him. And the Pharisees are leading the charge. His people Israel have lost the heart of God. And God has given their seats up at the table to others. It's a chilling verdict at the end of the Old Testament as we transition into the period where Jesus is on the scene. After 400 years of silence, after exile out of the promised land, Jesus comes and says, you guys actually don't have it right. You think that you do, but you're assuming wrongly. This morning, if you're a Christian, I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to assume that you want to be at this banquet. I'm going to assume that this idea of, of a heavenly feast put on by the master God is something that brings you hope and inspiration and something that you are striving for and hoping for. And at the end of the day, you just want to be there. But if you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're seeking, uh, maybe you were like me a few years ago and you just decided you're going you're gonna to walk away from the whole church thing for a while, I want, I want, to, make, uh, I want to make an assumption with you that this is all for real. Because I know that there's some skepticism around the idea of heaven and hell. So for a moment, come with me and just assume that this feast actually is going to happen, even if you don't think so. And let's just assume for a moment that heaven and hell are real and they do exist. The first question we must ask ourselves is this. Is there any part of us whatsoever, in any way, that is like these Pharisees? Is there anything in our minds the way we think, anything in our actions the way we do, anything at all in us that is similar to the Pharisees? See, there is a stern warning given into, all, in, into this story to all those who think that they are in because of their own merit, because of what they bring to the table, because of their own righteousness, because of the good things that they do. All who think, however, that they deserve a seat at the table have not figured it out yet. Or you've figured it out and lost it along the way. Being a good person does not get you a seat at this table. Those who are more concerned with power and social status and followers online and on and on haven't figured it out yet. There is also a stern warning given here to those who have misplaced priorities. Remember the three excuses for a moment. The first man would rather inspect his field than hang out with the master. The second man would rather try out his new toys and have some fun than go to the banquet. The third man would rather be with his wife. Bottom line, they would rather do other things than, to use Christian language, devote themselves to the master. They would rather do other things and make excuses than hang out at the host's banquet. There are three functional idols that I see here represented in this parable. A functional idol is something that functionally in your life, in other words, you look back at your decisions, you look back at the way of life, and you see that there is something in your life that takes the place of God or threatens to take the place of God as number one in your life. The three ones here I see are money, materialism, and marriage, or more specifically, self-fulfillment, selfishness, doing what I want to do, me first. 
See, idols sound bad, but what they really are are good things, often, turned into ultimate things. Idols can be things that are good, but if you elevate them higher than they should be, you have an idolatry problem, and I think that's what some of these people are dealing with here. So the question would be, is there anything in your life that is more important than God? Is there anything in your life that is threatening to take that top spot? Maybe it's not taking it all the way, but something that is approaching that level where it's becoming so important to you that you're beginning to make excuses for your devotional times, coming to church, how you, how you talk about your faith to your children, how you pray, or any number of other things. Maybe how you treat the poor. The first idol, money. It's an easy one. We just ask ourselves, how do you spend your money? Take a look at your bank account. What are you investing in? What are you saving in? How do you give? Of course, that one's an easy one to analyze because you can just start. How are you investing in what God is doing at your local church, at at, at C4 Church? That's a good place to start and then go from there. Is, Is money threatening to be a functional idol in your life? The second one, materialism. This is rampant in our culture, of course. It's similar to to money, but it's different. Is there anything that you own, or is there anything that you're striving to acquire that when you really are honest with yourself, because one day we're all going to have to be painfully honest with God, when you're really honest with yourself, you would see that it is more important to you than God and what God wants you to be striving for. Maybe what God wants is more important than what you want. Maybe his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But we all struggle with this, don't we? We all see things that we want, and and quite often, as I said, they are good things. But they have their place in the pecking order in our lives. The third one might be the most pervasive. This is kind of an all-encompassing idol in our lives and in our culture. Self-fulfillment. At the end of the day, the question is just simple. Are you living out your plans for your life, or are you living out God's plans for your life? I'll tell you what, I used to live out God's, uh, my plans for my life, and I never expected to be here, that's for sure. But God had different plans for me. He had better plans for me. And Scripture says that he has a plan for all of us if we just want to follow him. When we follow our own plans, when we, when we focus too much perhaps on, on our spouse even can be an idol, our kids climbing the corporate ladder, anything good turned ultimate. When we are looking out for ourselves, number one, Perhaps we are beginning to be like the Pharisees. So is there any way, in any way at all, that you resemble a Pharisee? Though our God was rejected by his own, there is beauty and there is hope for the world right in the midst of it. Not only is God's kingdom now open to everyone, that's part of the good news. The other part of the good news is that our invitation to the banquet is not based on our own merit any longer. It is based on someone else's merit. It's based on what Jesus did, and it's based on what Jesus accomplished for us because we couldn't. And now because of Jesus, those who don't belong, belong. So are you the other group? Are you the one who would identify with the poor, the blind, the crippled, or the lame? Maybe this, is, maybe this is a symbol of how you feel. Maybe you feel lost. Maybe you feel unwanted. Maybe you feel like you're damaged goods and no one would ever want you, especially not God. Do you feel like an outcast? A loner? An outsider? Maybe you are literally poor. Maybe you are literally blind or crippled in some way. 
Jesus comes to us this morning and he says, there is only one way to come to me and there is only one way to acquire a ticket to this banquet. There's only one way to get a seat at this table and it's to confess that without Jesus, we are all completely unworthy. We are all blind and poor and crippled and lame because Jesus took our rightful place on the cross. However, we can have a seat at his table. See, the good news is that if you think God would never want you, you're already in real good shape. You're already halfway there. When you are at your lowest, Christian or non-Christian, God is at his strongest. When everyone else has rejected you, God has accepted you. And this is the gospel. We are the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame that the master has invited to eat at his table. We are the outsiders. We are the misfits. We are the ones who do not deserve to sit at the master's table. We're unworthy to attend the king's banquet. We are spiritually poor, even if we're not literally poor. We are spiritually crippled and lame and blind. And we are disqualified by our sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who deserves a seat. So what did God do when humanity rejected him? He sent his son into the world to make a way for us to come and eat at his table. Jesus came down to us, leaving the banquet in heaven to become poor, crippled, and lame so that we could have a seat at his table, so that we could be elevated, so that we could have the seat of honor. Jesus was so poor, Scripture says, that he had no place to lay his head, and he did that so that you and I could be rich. Jesus became crippled on the cross when they nailed his hands and feet to a tree so that we could be healed. Jesus became lame in the tomb so that we could be free and have life both to the, to the full, both now and forever. Like an outcast and like the lowest of society, Jesus died outside the city gates, abandoned and betrayed by just about all. Jesus left everything and became nothing so that we could receive an invitation to his feast and sit at his table at the banquet in the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. We have so much to be thankful for. Jesus became an outsider so that we could be invited in. And oh, what a banquet it will be. Obama's state dinner has nothing on what this is going to be like. In Isaiah 25, it says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. The sheet that covers the nations, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will move his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. The words of the Pharisee in verse 15 could not be more true, be they taken out of context. What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. See, if you are a Christian, heaven is your great reward, and it should be your ultimate hope when things are not going your way, when you don't like your job, when your family is not coming together the way that you hoped. We have heaven to look forward to. One day, all who have accepted Jesus' invitation will enter eternity where there will be no more death or crying or mourning or pain, and we will eat together. We will share a meal with each other. We will share a meal with Jesus who did this all for us at a banquet prepared for us, even right now, being prepared for us by God. And because of Jesus, we all, you and I, 
no matter your background, your history, or what happened before you came in here this morning. We all have an invitation. And your invitation is not predicated on what you bring to the table. Your holiness, your goodness, your power, your money, your social status. Useless. Useless. It's dust when it all comes down. It is only based on the blood of Jesus. He is our one defense. He is our righteousness. God, how we need you. What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet at the kingdom of God. But what a tragedy it would be to be invited and yet miss out altogether. Have you accepted the invitation? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you and we praise you first, Lord, for creating us and secondly, Lord, for coming into the world to make a way for us to have a seat at your table. Lord, we thank you for hope because we know that in this world we have trouble, but we know that you have overcome the world. And we praise you, Lord, that because you came down and took on flesh and put aside the advantages that came with being God and lived a life just like ours, so that you understand everything we go through. And because you triumphed over the cross in victory, Lord, we can be invited, though we do not deserve it, to your table. Lord, I pray that you would captivate our minds with this idea, this picture, even now, Holy Spirit, of this heavenly feast, when everything will be put right, when we will have joy abundant like we've never experienced before and it will be not be taken away. Lord, I pray that if there is any way in us at all, even if it's just a small way, that we are like the Pharisees that you speak of in this parable. I pray, Lord, that you would convict. I pray that you would point it out to us, Lord, so that we can turn from those ways and repent. Lord, may you give us the ability to come to your table like a poor or a crippled or a lame or a blind person, like someone who is considered an outsider, like someone who knows they don't deserve it, because, Lord, we do not deserve it. And, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified as we worship you now, because you are so worthy of our praise. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. We're going to take up communion this morning. It's going to be passed couldn't think of a better passage to transition into communion than this. Communion is a sign of the heavenly feast that is to come. It's a reminder that one day we are going to eat with Jesus because Jesus went to the cross and he died. The bread and the wine, or in our case, grape juice, represents the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus, who when he went to the cross... He did it for our sins, and he bore our sin and our shame. So that when we continue to walk in sin, we are making mockery of the cross and all that Jesus went, all the great lengths that Jesus went to for us. If you are a Christian this morning, I would invite you to participate in communion. But if you are not, I would just respectfully ask that you don't partake this morning. And if you are like me a few years ago and you're just blatantly running from the Lord, I would also ask that you just withhold from this morning. But as we always say, communion is the perfect time for you to come back to the Lord or come to Him for the first time. So if you want to do that, there's going to be a prayer team in the front here in just a few minutes and you can come find them and pray with them about that. As we come and take part, let's remember what God has done. Remember what Jesus has done for us. Let's examine our own hearts and let's worship the Lord. Amen.
Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.